So good evening. Thanks for being here. I know that this can be a hard service. It's it's particularly a hard service if you're watching online because so much of it is meant to really uh, you're just meant to feel uh, the room. And so, but even if you're in the room, it's hard because it's just something we're not used to. It's dark. Uh, all the songs are in minor keys. Uh, Easter's coming, I promise. But I really think there's value for us to sit into this in this moment and really contemplate just the complexity of what of what we uh, you know what we should feel as we celebrate uh, and remember and grieve uh, the, the the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. Here's what I want us to do. This is also unusual for us because but because it is such a, a high water mark uh, in our Bibles. It is the the, the crux of the gospel story as we read again uh, the words of his crucifixion. I'm going to read it from Matthew's gospel, but as I do, I wonder if you would stand just, just, just in reverence of God's word and in eagerness to receive and to hear from God about what he has done in Jesus and because we've not stood yet in the service, so stretch your legs a little bit, okay? So let's read together beginning in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour... There was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put, on it, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And yielded up his spirit. And then the part we've already read, but it's so amazing it bears being read again. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were all opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him kept watch over Jesus, they saw the earthquake and what took place. And they were filled with awe. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. And so as we just consider this passage for a few minutes, a couple of things. I want you to see, let's talk for a minute about what happened on the cross as Jesus hung there. But then what else happened because Jesus hung upon the cross and what can and what should happen in you and me because of the cross. And so each of those things in turn very quickly as we walk through this together. So first, let's just talk from that text. You can get your Bible that's in front of you there if you want to, or, or it's not printed for you, I don't think. But let's talk about what actually happened as Jesus hung upon the cross. Now, just a bit ago, we read from the seven words of Jesus, the seven last sayings of Jesus there as he hung in those hours that he was being crucified. But in Matthew's account, Jesus only speaks once. Only one of the seven occurs in Matthew's gospel, and it's this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew did not include any of the other words, I assume, because in his mind, this is the essence of the cross, the fatherlessness of the son, the sonlessness of the father. And what's happening there is in his moment of anguish, Jesus did what he had done eternally, He reached out for the Father, and for the very first time, from all eternity, when he reached out, he was not there. Where the Father's loving presence had eternally been, there was now nothing. And it says from the sixth hour, that is about noon, midday, to 
the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land until about 3 p.m. when Jesus finally died. And the darkness there is a symbol of judgment. The prophet spoke of the day of the Lord being the day of God's judgment being a day of deep darkness. The phrase outer darkness, as you're probably aware, was used to describe hell, eternal separation from God. It is an image of God forsakenness, and that's what you have here. And it was the sentence that our sins deserve, being carried out on the one who knew no sin. Jesus, we're told, became the sin of his people in his Father's eyes. And in holy wrath, the Father forsook him, and you see his anguish. And that, that, what I just described was the anguish of the cross. Not the physical pain, that. I mean, when he got just a glimpse of it in the garden the night before... He began to sweat blood, and here he is under the compounded, think about it, the compounded wrath of God for the sins of the whole world throughout all of human history. Not only enduring hell, but enduring my hell and your hell in the cumulative sentence of all who are his. That's what's happening on the cross. John Stott offers the best summary of the gospel that I know. He says this. He says, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone, and yet God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. And that is what you see in this text. We have all sought not to honor God, but to replace him. And the consequence of that rebellion is death and hell. But Jesus, we learn, did not come to condemn us, but to replace us before the bar of God's judgment, to be held accountable for everything that you and I have done, and to bear the penalty of our sins, the penalty our sins deserve. And so that if you believe in him, then you can be treated as he deserves. God can consider your sins, and he fa in fact, he does. He considers your sins just as forgiven, just as if you died upon the cross yourself to pay for them. That is what you see happening in this text. But secondly, well, what happened because of what I just described happening as Jesus hung upon the cross? And we're told about two things by Matthew, and each of them are significant. The first is that in verse 51, it says that the, at immediately as he breathed his last, the earth began to shake, and the curtain that was in the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Now, if you've been doing worship at the table with us for, for the past couple of weeks, you know that the curtain in the temple, uh, we, did, we did this in our home, and I hope you've done it. You, you, you know that um, the curtain there uh, was a reminder of our own God-forsakenness, of our exile. It separated the most holy place where the ark was, the, the, the footstool of God's throne, the very presence of God dwelling there, it separated that place from the rest of the temple. And no one was allowed in except the high priest only once a year and only by making sacrifice and always with a, quite a bit of fear. He would tie a rope to his ankle and go in in case the glory of God came and killed him and he died and they could pull him out without anybody, without anybody else having to go in and, and also die. That was the sense of fear that was surrounding this. And it all carried a very important spiritual lesson. And the lesson was this, that it is now fatal for us to have the very thing for which we're designed. We were made for God's presence. But to come into the holies of holy, holy of holies meant death. Sin had closed the door to God's presence. And so woven into that curtain, if you remember, if you did this at home, were the cherubim 
which was a reminder of the story of sin, how God exiled the man and the woman from the garden and posted angelic beings at the entrance to keep them out. And so this curtain is there, and the curtain was a big keep-out sign. But when Jesus died, we're told it was, tore, it was torn in two. And this, too, carried an important spiritual truth. Because Jesus endured the darkness of God, forsaken us for our sins, he can now open the door to God's presence to us. Paradise has been regained. It's been reopened, and we can come in. They're no longer flaming swords, barring us from coming. We can come in. But also, don't miss the detail. Do you remember when we read it, it said that the curtain was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And that is a reminder that salvation is by grace, that it's God's work, not ours. That salvation comes from God down to man, not from man up to God. God himself tore the curtain in two. He had to. This curtain was 30 feet wide by 60 feet long. It took 300 men to carry it. It was so heavy. So only a supernatural work of God could break through the separation. That's the lesson. But then one last thing, it says the curtain was torn in two. It was irreparably damaged. It wouldn't need, because it wasn't needed any longer. Sin had truly been atoned for. And so this curtain torn in two, that's the first thing that happens because of the cross. But the second thing was, is as you go about the story, you realize that the curtain tore two, and then death began to work backwards. Now, that's not my phrase. You'll be shocked to learn that it comes from C.S. Lewis and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe which would be a great story to read around Easter time, if you have a family with young children, where Aslan the lion dies and then is resurrected, and the children were amazed. They were shocked at what had happened because they did not know the deeper magic. That when an innocent willingly takes, or excuse me, willingly gives his life in the place of the, of the guilty, the stone table, or the curtain, will split in two, and death itself will work backwards. And here in Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53, we're told that the rocks were split in two. The curtains torn in two, the rocks are split in two, the gravestones, the tombs were opened, and those who had fallen asleep were raised. It's a wild scene, isn't it? I mean, on Sunday, when Jesus came out of his tomb, it says some of the dead came out of theirs too. How would you have liked to have been in Jerusalem over that weekend? Think about that. What in the world's going on? Well, the wages of sin is death. But Jesus paid for sin, reversing, reversing death, putting death to death. But let's not spoil Easter, okay? Let's, let's don't go too far down that road. Instead, let's see, lastly, if this is the curtain torn too, death began to work backwards. But, but we can also see what should and what can happen in us because of the cross. Because it says that in the response to all of this, when the centurion and those who were with him, the unbelieving Roman soldiers, they saw the earthquake and what took place. It says they were filled with awe and said, truly, this is the Son of God. And so it's hard to know what emotions to feel on Good Friday, isn't it? This, I said, this is a really hard service because the cross is a brutal, ugly thing displaying the holiness and wrath of God. And so we should feel great sorrow and grief for our sins. And that's why the tone of the service is the way that it is. But the cross is also a beautiful thing displaying the love and the grace of God. And so we should feel great gratitude and joy. There are a lot of different emotions and they're all summed up in the one word Matthew used to describe the emotional response, the reaction of the soldiers, awe. They were filled with awe. And that is what can and should happen to us. 
and happen in us as we consider the cross. We should be filled with awe, too, like they were. Now, in the original language, there are actually two words there. In that phrase, there's a verb and then there's an adverb, and both are important. The verb, you might be surprised. I was really surprised. I didn't realize this. The verb, that, the verb awe is actually the word phobia, which, of course, we know refers to an exaggerated and a consuming fear, the kind of fear that when you're feeling it, you can't feel anything else. It's an overriding. It overrides all your other mental and emotional processes. So you may not be aware of this, uh, but I have a fear of heights. It's actually not a fear of heights. It's a fear of falling to my death. That's really the fear. I, 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 I claim my, my father's responsible for hanging me over the balcony of high store, you know, buildings and mountain, you know, things when I was a little kid and scaring me to death. But um, I, so I really struggle with that. And uh, I, this past, so this past, uh, whenever, uh, October, we went to North Carolina, as we do, we went to Grandfather Mountain. And if you've ever been to Grandfather Mountain, there's a trail that goes up from the um, parking lot that, you know, they post signs, people die on this trail every, every year. And yet the Bennett family did it. And we got up to the top and my kids had the biggest hoot because uh, there's parts where it's really steep and you feel like you're going to fall off the mountain. And, and both Ashley and I were just frozen in place and could hardly move because of the heights. And we're yelling at our kids, get away from the ledge, you know, and they're laughing at us like, oh, you're so stupid. Ah, you know, and that, and that is what this word is, that sense of something that comes upon you where when you feel it, you can't feel anything else, where it, it freezes you in place. It overrides all of your mental processing of things. And so awe is a good word. Now the adverb, which is there to modify the verb, awe, is a word that actually describes a violent reaction, not just anger, but explosive anger, right? Not just, not just sadness, but this overwhelming, I mean, overwhelming, consuming sadness. They were filled with awe, it says. And the two side by side, the verb and the adverb there, are a reminder that the only reasonable way to respond to the cross is extremely. With extreme sorrow and extreme gratitude and joy. But if your reaction is just casual, it means something's off. It means that something is wrong. If you can sit through this service and you can read these texts and feel nothing or next to nothing, then you're not seeing what you're supposed to be seeing. Because the cross is a great, powerful work that Jesus has accomplished for us, which by the Spirit can become and should become a great, powerful work he accomplishes in us to cause us to respond to the cross like the men here, with awe. And here's what I think. If there is no awe, it's because you've forgotten the grace of it. In the Bible, this is called the offense of the cross, the offense of the cross, to be offended that Christianity is, in fact, grace. And what must be, what must be done, you cannot do. So faith and repentance on a day like today require you, if this is you, if you feel nothing or next to nothing, to realign your mind and heart and soul with the grace of it. So that instead of an offense, the cross becomes a boast. Those are the two options. The cross is either an offense or a boast. And if it's an offense, you'll despise it. But if it's a boast, 
you'll be in awe of it. Now, John Stott said, if you look at the cross and ask why, why? Why did that happen? Why would Jesus do that? What, what is going on? Why? He said there are two answers. He said the first answer is, if you ask why, the first answer is, I did it. My sins sent him there. And that should cause, it causes us to feel extreme reverence and humility. But the other answer, he said, is if you ask why, the answer is, he did it. His love sent him there. And that causes me to feel extreme gratitude and joy. And the two side by side together are what Paul meant by boasting in the cross because that is the appropriate emotional response for the cross to become your boast, a source of spiritual energy and urgency for you, something that comes in and becomes the source of your strength and courage and perseverance as you follow him. But you have to know, you have to know the lesson. You have to know the spiritual truth the cross teaches and it's just this, that you're a sinner and God loves you at the same time. That's the message of Good Friday. But is it wonderful to you? Does it fill you with awe to know that at your best, you're never beyond the need of God's love, but at your worst, you're never beyond the reach of his love? That you did nothing to earn or deserve his love, and so there's nothing that you can do to lose it. See, knowing that, that, knowing that truth is where the spiritual power comes from, where, where as you begin to really wrestle with it, as it begins to come home to your heart, you get filled with all too. It's just as the hymn writer said. Listen to these words. He said, the cross, it takes our guilt away. It holds the fainting spirit up. It cheers with hope the gloomy day and sweetens every bitter cup. It makes the coward spirit brave and nerves the feeble arm to fight. It takes its terror from the grave and gilds the bed of death with light. The balm of life, the cure of woe, the measure and pledge of love, the sinner's refuge here below, the angel's theme in heaven above. Pray with me, would you? So, Father, as we continue in these last few moments we have together to consider your cross, would you, Holy Spirit, come? Jesus, thank you for this great work you've accomplished on our behalf, but Holy Spirit, would you come? And would you apply it to our hearts? Would you come and would you drive home the truth of it to us that we would feel as we should feel? Because so often we can be like Ezekiel's dry bones. We can have calloused hearts, dull hearts. We can be so spiritually dull, we confess this. Because we turn again and again away from the truth of your gospel and back into striving to accomplish on our own what can only be accomplished by you. And it leaves us dry and dull and so I pray Holy Spirit that you would powerfully remind us through uh, this, this beholding of, of the Son of God hanging upon a cross for our sins of the truth that we are saved by grace that it's not our work but the work of God on our behalf and to just marvel at that, be filled with awe at it, and rest in it. Because that's what you desire for us. And so, give us a heart and give us a voice to sing now as we, as we sing and, uh, and remember what a wonderful Savior you are. Come and do this work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.